As we see on the wall behind me, I'm preaching this morning from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and I'm referring back to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49. But I am going to read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 this morning. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion, a centurion's servant whom his master valued, high, valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built us or built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am myself a man under authority, uh, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Timothy and Kathy Keller co-pastored a devotional book on the book of Psalms, and the book is called The Songs of Jesus. In the October 4th reading, uh, the theme is how Christians live differently than the society around them. And this difference happens because of the radical love of Jesus Christ, along with Jesus, answering Jesus' call to be representatives of his kingdom. And they wrote that this deep divide with the world, between Christians and the world, they, they wrote that this deep divide, and I quote, is both weird and attractive at the same time. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. I appreciated that. Weird and attractive at the same time. It's not that we're weirdly attractive. The idea here is that the life of a Christian is upside down with the natural thought and human tendency of our world. The life of a Christ follower is so different that it cannot be hidden as one might hide a penny in their pocket. So Jesus outlined his expectations for uh, citizens in the kingdom of heaven in what, was call, what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon is found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. That's just something you should know, okay? If somebody asks you where the Sermon on the Mount is found, you say Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. That's just it. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because the introduction reads, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Well, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 17 to 49, which I'm going to reference this morning, there's an abbreviated account of that sermon. In Luke's Gospel, it's not called the Sermon on the Mount, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Because when Luke introduced it, he wrote, he, that is Jesus, went down with them and stood at a level place. 
So scholars are not agreed whether Matthew and Luke are reporting the same sermon on the same occasion. And those that hold that it's one sermon, one occasion, basically, basically say that the level place was merely a plateau on the side of the mountain. But those that hold, no, this is two sermons, two different places, uh, say that the descriptions uh, on the mountainside, on the level place, tell us that Jesus preached this sermon on more than one occasion. He actually reused a sermon. Well, the fact we have two accounts of this message uh, inform us that this teaching of Jesus should be taken seriously. Now, the story of the Roman centurion whose faith amazed Jesus, and which I read for you, follows right after Luke's account of the Sermon on the Plain. And this is the connecting link, because we read in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. So there's a connection between the sermon and the story. And scholars tell us that there's a reason for this, because the story of the centurion's faith serves as an illustration for the sermon. The centurion's faith demonstrates a principle that Jesus taught in the sermon. And it's a principle that many people struggle to understand and comprehend. And even when they do, they have even more of a struggle to put it into practice. And the principle is this. I want you to get this point, okay? If, you, if you're going to sleep through the rest of it, that's fine. But get this point, okay? The kingdom of heaven is not based on reciprocity or mutual benefit. The kingdom of heaven is not based on reciprocity or mutual benefit. It is not a kingdom where if we do God a good turn, he will do us a good turn. That's not the way the kingdom works. There are no brownie points in the kingdom. There are no trade-offs between a good deed for a good deed. Nothing is given or gained by human merit. It's a realm of grace. That's all it is. It's a realm of grace, okay? Got that? It's a realm of grace. In order to understand the story of the centurion's faith, we must first look at the Sermon on the Plain. Because if the story illustrates the sermon, the sermon gives us an understanding of the story. Okay? And for that purpose, we're going to look very briefly at the main points on the sermon. And so the sermon starts in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. But in verse 20, verses 20 to 22, Jesus begins, began by identifying the people who are blessed or who are happy in the kingdom of heaven. These are the people who are really happy in church, okay? This, uh, and those on the list are the poor, the hungry, the sad, and the hated, now, understand, these are not the happy people in the world, okay? These are people who are happy in the kingdom of heaven. And the poverty and the hunger and the sorrow and the hatred are all related in the kingdom of heaven. The poverty is poverty of spirit that brings us to God. The hunger is for righteousness that brings us for God. The sorrow is due to sin that brings us to God. And the hatred is because of Christ's sake. In the kingdom of heaven, these people are considered happy because they are the ones who have responded to God. 
They have discovered the truth of God's grace in the midst of their desperation. And so they have come to God and they've given God their poverty and their pain, and they have received in return his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his goodness. You know, I want you to understand there's no exchange here. There's no exchange between God and these people because they give to God nothing. They receive everything. They have found grace and grace alone. Now, as we move on into the next part of the story, verses 24 to 26, Jesus then expressed sorrow for another group of people. They are the ones Jesus sees without a very bright future in the kingdom of heaven. They're not going to be happy. And, and he, he uttered a series of woes against the rich, the full, the famous, the world's powerful and influential, those who have reached the top of society's social ladder. Now, Jesus' sorrow for this crowd is because commonly or generally, in their abundance, they have no room for him, they have no room for his grace, and they believe they have everything they need in their wealth, their abilities, their activities, and their successes. So they approach God out of self-sufficiency. We really don't need God, but we'll come to you anyways. And, and in, in, their, in their successes and in their righteous, uh, self-righteousness, they can't even comprehend that they're poverty, their spiritual poverty. They can't understand that. So they approach God with everything. They come to God boasting. They approach God with everything. They leave God with nothing. There's no exchange. There's no, no exchange of value. Because anything they offer to God, God goes, I can't use it. And God says, I have nothing for you because you're already full. So, they, so we, this two, these two lists, we learn something. That those who approach God in want leave with abundance. Those who go to God uh, uh, in full leave God empty. So the principle is clear. In God's kingdom, gain is not earned, nor is it deserved. It's received by grace. And those who will, be, will, will throw themselves on the grace of God will be rich and happy. But those who refuse grace, despite all else they have in life, they will be paupers in the kingdom of God. So we have these blessings and these woes in the sermon. And after the blessings and after the woes, Jesus outlined certain behaviors expectations that he has for those living in the kingdom of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, though ones who have received grace, okay? Now, these are lofty goals, extremely high goals, as much as they are uncharacteristic of the way the world thinks. And these are the things that make us weird or attractive, depending on someone's point of view. They're going to look at us and say, you're weird. Or they're going to look at us and say, I like that. But these are the things. So Jesus commands his followers to what? Love their enemies. Bless those who curse them. Pray for those who mistreat them. Receive insults without retaliation. Give generously without expectation of reward or recognition. Tough list, isn't it? That's a tough list. Now notice, on each one of those five conditions, notice the focus on grace. Because in our natural world, okay, these things don't make sense. 
See, in, in our natural thought, enemies don't deserve to be loved. You know what to do with enemies, okay? And those who curse don't deserve blessings. And those who mistreat others don't deserve to be on our prayer list. And those who insult others don't deserve to get away scot-free. And those who give, well, they deserve to be rewarded and recognized. Yeah, look at that person. He gave a lot. He should be recognized. Because that's the natural, normal way of thinking. However, it's not so in the kingdom of heaven. Christ followers don't treat others as they deserve. Because that's not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is grace. See, Jesus went on to stress that, that uh, there's no credit to us if we love those who love us, who do good, we do good to those who do, are, do good to us. Because that's just normal society. You go to work, Somebody's a good coworker. You work hard with them. You go to work. Someone's lazy. You know, as a pet dog, you just sort of mope around with them because that's the way the world. That's the way the world acts. Everyone loves those who loves them. Everybody does good to those who does do good to them. And so, followers of Jesus don't act like that because they're either weird or attractive. They extend grace just as they receive grace. See, the essence of the kingdom of heaven is the character of God. He is a God of grace. He does not treat us as we deserve. His love for us is not based on our performance. He doesn't require proof of changed behavior before he says, okay, now I'll forgive you. Isn't that great? And, and, and he calls us to the same standard as Christ followers in the kingdom of God. That's the standard he has set for us, his own self. And so grace known, if we know grace, grace known becomes grace shown. That's what he calls us to. I have get, treated you with grace. I expect you to respond with grace. Because I want you to understand this, get this point, the kingdom of God is all about grace. So the, this teaching provides the context for the story of the centurion whose faith amazed, amazed Jesus. In the story, I want you to pay attention to the words deserve and worthy. Deserve and worthy, because they come up in the story quite a bit, okay? So remember grace is not something given to those who are worthy or received by those who deserve it. Grace, by its very definition, is unmerited favor. If something is given because it is merited, no matter what you may want to call it, it's not grace. It is either a award, an award or a reward. So now let's go to the story. After, after the sermon, we, we've learned this, after the sermon, Jesus enters the town of Capernaum. And a Roman centurion in that town had a servant uh, who was dying. And he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus, requesting Jesus, requesting him to come and heal his servant. Surprisingly, the Jewish elders agree to the Roman soldier's request and to be his representatives. Oh, we look at that and we go, yay, 
because the story starts out consistent with the sermon. They've attended church and they're applying this because politically, religiously, and culturally, and socially, Jews and Romans did not get along. They were enemies. Their worlds clashed. And that these Jewish elders would agree to go to Jesus on behalf of a Roman centurion is something like what Jesus taught in the sermon. Love your enemies. Hmm. We're impressed. This is going to be a good story. So far, so good. Jesus must have been pleased. The Jewish elders, however, must have believed Jesus as a teacher, a rabbi in Israel, may not have been as open-minded as they were concerning helping a Roman soldier because Luke reported in verse 4, they pleaded earnestly with Jesus. Yeah, they thought they had to persuade Jesus to act on the behalf of this enemy Roman soldier. So they, they, they uh, pleaded earnestly. And in their pleading, they had an argument. They were ready with an argument. If we're going to have to persuade Jesus, we're going to have to have an argument. And so this is the argument. Do you get it? This man is what? Deserves to have you do this. This man deserves to have you do this. Ah, here we are. We're into the kingdom of man now, not the kingdom of heaven. This man deserves. And he deserves it because he's, he loved the nation of Israel and he had built a synagogue for them. So just after exiting the story and entering Capernaum, and, and, and the, the contrast is stark, isn't it? Because Jesus has clearly taught that the kingdom of heaven is not about deserving. It's not about worthy. It, it, it's, it isn't about scratching one's back so that you get your back scratched. It's solely based on grace. And if the Jewish elders attended the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, however you want to describe it, if they attended it, I'm going to tell you something. They slept through it. They, they just dozed off because they missed it. Because here they came to Jesus totally on the human level. The level we operate normally. The level of deserve and worthy. Not on the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus taught about, which is the kingdom of grace. At this point, you know, it just wouldn't have surprised me if Jesus just sort of said, well, time out here. Let's take a break, everybody. Everybody take a deep breath. What did I just preach on? Didn't I just preach on grace? Didn't I just preach on not deserving and not worthy? Now, what are you coming to me for and talking to me about deserving? Because he loves the nation and built a synagogue. What's this all about? This isn't the way of my kingdom. Now, it's interesting, Jesus, you know, Jesus was gracious, and he doesn't correct the elders' mistaken logic. He doesn't say, you know, you guys are wrong. He just says, okay, let's go to the centurion's house, and he agrees to go with them. And as they make their way to the centurion's home, the centurion sent out a second group of people. He sent out the Jewish elders first. Now he sends out a second group, and this time the party, we're told, is made up of friends. And if they're friends of the centurion, they're likely non-Jewish. 
Because the centurion is now having second thoughts. He's now thinking this thing through. He's, he's comprehending. I, I, I'd like to think the text of the sermon. Maybe he watched it online or something got to him. Because he has second thoughts. He, he couldn't ask Jesus to enter his home. Because Jews don't go into the homes of Romans. They're, they're, they're not social companions. They're enemies. And it was presumptuous of, for him to ask Jesus to break this custom even for his dying servant. And so the friends were sent, were given this very specific particular message. And it's found in verses 6 and 7. He, he, here's what he said to, to the friends. Here's what I want you to tell Jesus. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not, you see the word? Deserve. To have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The, the religious leaders, they come, this man deserves you for you to do this. He, he sends out friends and says, listen, I do not deserve this. I am not worthy of this. And you see, the centurion saw something. He, he believed that Jesus would do a miracle even though he wasn't worthy. And, and, and he was more perceptive than the religious leaders because the religious leaders, for some reason, and hey, religious leaders are famous for this, well, they don't get off the temporal plane, the human plane, deserve and worthy. And this was the basis of the centurion's faith. He believed Jesus would answer his request despite the racial divide. He believed Jesus would answer his prayer, even though according to decorum, he was unworthy to approach Jesus. He understood grace it has nothing to do with worthy or deserving. And this insight led him to another insight. Jesus didn't even need to enter my house. He doesn't even have to come into my house to perform the miracle because I know that his, on, my unworthiness will not limit his willingness and I also know that my unworthiness will not limit his authority. And so he perceived a principle that was at work in the military world. His military world would also work in the spiritual realm. He said, Jesus, I see in you an authority greater than my own. I rule men. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And they say to another, do this and do that. But Jesus, you rule in an unseen dimension. Your authority is in the world of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in the world of the spirits. You are, your authority is over demons and over death and over disease. And all you have to do is speak the word, and my servant will get well. It's just a matter of your command. That's all we're waiting for. And Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. So amazed, he addressed the crowd. He said, you know what? I have not found such great faith in Israel. Remember, he's Roman. He's not a part of Israel. And remember, also, this would include his own disciples. Because this centurion perceived a principle that many of us miss. We don't have to be worthy. We don't have to deserve. The kingdom is grace. See, the centurion's faith was twofold. And we largely focus on the one side of it. We like this idea of authority. I like it just as much as any. And I'm not diminishing this side of the argument. You know, Jesus can command disease, death, and demons. And, and he has power over all. Everything obeys his word. He can say to the sick, be healed. He can say to the dead, come forth. And he can say to the sinner, you are forgiven. He has that authority. 
Yet there's another side to the centurion's faith. And, that, that, and it's just as important if we're going to come to Jesus. He saw a principle many people have not fully understood, even though they have attended churches all their lives. Jesus does not ask anything of us before he bestows grace. Oh, aren't we thankful? You don't have to have so many check marks in your devotional book before God says, okay, now I'm going to take you serious. Isn't that great? See, you, there, there aren't different levels that you need to achieve before God says, or Jesus says, you know what, I think I'll let, I'll let you on my team. You're pretty good. You deserve to be captain or assistant captain or something. And see, for many people, and I dare say there are people sitting here this morning, there, for many people, their whole spiritual existence is this battle between worthy and unworthy. I've had a good day, I'm worthy. I've had a rotten day, I'm not unworthy. I, I'm not worthy. And so they're, they're, this is it. Their life, their spiritual walk is teeter-worthy, teeter-unworthy, teeter-worthy, teeter-unworthy. And I'm going to tell you something, that if that's your life, it's not likely that it's a very happy life, and it's not likely that you're going to succeed. You need to kind of start understanding this principle. You're not worthy, but that's why it's grace. You see, we enter the kingdom of heaven by grace. We live out the kingdom of heaven by grace. And when we put merit, and we put deserving, and we put earning, and we put elevation of status in the kingdom of heaven, Oh, that person, mm, yeah, that person, ooh, no. But when we start doing this kind of stuff, what we're doing is we're taking the kingdom of heaven and we're putting it, planting it on the earth, making it a kingdom of man, a club, where if you do so many good things, you get badges. And if you get enough badges, ah, then you'll get esteem and recognition. And that's not the kingdom of heaven. It is not the kingdom of heaven. But I want to just turn the application a little bit. Can be, it can be made another way. It isn't always that we feel unworthy, therefore we don't pray. There are times we make a different demand of God. We say, God, you must prove yourself worthy if I'm going to give you my worship. You understand what we're saying here? We're flipping it around. It's not I am unworthy, but God is unworthy. He's failed me. Recently, I read an account of a woman who followed Jesus Christ, went to church, did all the things that believers were called to do. By every account, she was a Christian. But then some really severe trouble entered her life. And she prayed. Prayed, expecting God to give her a very specific answer. And she didn't get it. So you know what she did? She just quit. She just did away with it all, quit going to church, quit reading the Bible, quit trying to even be a Christian. She just let it all go. And when she was asked why, she answered with a question, and the question is this. How can I worship God? I got, I'm sorry, how can I worship a God I don't trust? How can I worship a God I don't trust? Now, at first, that question appeals to us because we're this way living. That appeals to our normal, natural thought. If I can't trust God, why would I worship him? However, it's only sensible because it appeals to this 
human preference of deserving, of worthy. The question she really asked was, how can I trust God who won't play by my rules of fairness? My rules. See, and my rule of fairness is this. I scratch God's back. He scratches my back. We're both happy and we're both winners. That thought is prevalent even in churches today. See, we got a, we got a relationship of equals where we scratch each other's back and everybody's happy. In God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, this reasoning is null and void. And friends, you should be delighted that it is. We should totally reject that because the question is, who can argue they're worthy of anything from God? And who can possibly think that God has an itch they can scratch? And God goes, oh, man, you got that right in the right spot. Thank you very much. I needed that. Where do we get off with that? See, who would suggest that they can be anything or do anything worthy of the kingdom of God? And we really, really don't want God to honor only those of us he finds worthy. Because you know why? We're all left out in the cold. There's not a worthy one amongst us. Sorry, but that's true. There's no one here worthy. Absolutely no one. See, what we want from God, and the good news is what God wants to give us is grace. God, I don't want to be treated as my sins deserve. I don't want to be treated that way. I want grace. And God says, you know what I want to give? I want to give you grace. See, David understood what the centurion perceived when he wrote, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And listen to these two lines. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Ah. Oh. We should be absolutely delighted at that. See, there's many there are many people who believe in Jesus. They don't have any trouble giving mental assent to a virgin birth. They don't have any trouble with Jesus calming the sea. They don't have any trouble hearing stories of Jesus raising the dead. They don't even have any trouble with Jesus raising, being raised from the dead themselves. And, and if I was to say he's the savior of the world, they say, yeah, that's right. But they're, but they're held back. But they're blinded or... They're hindered by a foundational principle of this world that we all get caught up in, that we get what we deserve. And they say, I'm not deserving of it. I have talked to too many people of that. I'm not worthy of his forgiveness. Absolutely you're not. But he wants to do it. See, they, they don't believe they deserve the kingdom of heaven. And actually, when we start to develop this, and when this starts to creep into the church, you know what it does? It, it, it tells us we're more a follower of Buddhism or of Hinduism than of Christ. 
because we've just given more credence to karma than to grace. And you know that karma is not a word that applies to Christianity. It's grace. It's grace. In Christianity, there's no such thing as karma. Thankfully, there's grace. He teaches us to live in a world of grace. He gives us grace, and he says, I want you to live out grace. I want you to be weird and attractive. He says, that's what I'm calling you to do. So are we worthy of God's grace? Absolutely not. But that's why it's grace. If we were, it wouldn't be grace. You know, there's a song um, we used to sing, I remember. And I sing it myself around my house. Okay, I, I like this song. You know, it's one of my favorite thousand. You know, and it, it, the, first, the last verse, I think, is the first line goes like this. Marvelous, infinite, matchless. Those are three amazing words. Marvelous, infinite, matchless, what? Grace. Then the second line goes, freely bestowed. Isn't that great? Freely bestowed on all who will believe. The third line goes, you who are, you are, you who are longing to see his face. The question is, will you this moment? His grace receive. And that's the question I'm going to leave you with this morning. Maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and, you're, and you struggle this morning with worthiness. I'm going to tell you, anyone here, if any of us trusted in worthiness to get forgiveness, we're all in bad shape. We can only come, as Charlotte Elliott wrote, just as I am without one plea. But that your blood was shed for me. We only come by the means of grace. And that's what I invite you today. Will you believe? Will you receive? Will you respond to his grace? Will you respond to his love? Will you believe and be saved?